Hello and welcome to Battlecast, the show where we avoid our wives and drink alone two blocks from our houses, looking out the windscreen and wondering where it all went wrong. Oh, wait. That's my life, not my podcast. No, Battlecast is a show where we talk about the greatest battles in history and drink beer. I'm Luke, and today I'm joining the bunker with Master Glass Shatterer Chris. Chris, say something to the people. Glass Shatterer, please remember you have to fill me in on the stories you tell your wife so that I understand why she's giving me the evil eye when I walk out of here. Dude, last time you were here, you broke about three glasses. How can one man break so many damn glasses? Oh, yes, Luke. I did break three glasses. How did I forget that thing when I broke that glass in that one time? Well, look, it doesn't matter, because today is a special show. You know why? You're going to talk less? No, wait, you're going to say something interesting. Ooh, is it Arbor Day? No, wait, 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 Flag Day. No, man, because today we're doing our hometown. We're talking about the Battle of Atlanta, the 100-Day Battle. Oh, that's better. That's a good one. General Johnson's heroic defense at Kennesaw Mountain and and surrounding area against Generals Sherman and McPherson, then giving way to the majestic beard of General John Hood, who commanded Confederate forces during the final Battle of Atlanta before Sherman burned the city. That was a majestic beard he had. You know, when I was preparing for the show, I kept thinking about driving down the back roads of Atlanta and seeing random chimneys when I was a kid. I always wondered what happened to the houses where these chimneys were. All across Georgia, if you get off the interstate, you see these eerie chimneys, and they always remind me of gravestones. And they are gravestones. They're gravestones to a nation, the Confederate States of America. These chimneys are silent testaments to the horrors of the Battle of Atlanta, and you, dear listeners, have driven blithely past them, past the scenes of weeping mothers, past the interminable lines of wounded men, past trench networks and atrocities, blood and sacrifice. Well, today, we remember the men who spilled their blood in the fields outside my window tonight, and with that, let's have a drink in honor of those brave men. Today we're drinking Laughing Skull Craft Lager by Red Brick Brewing Company out of Atlanta, Georgia. This light-bodied lager comes in at 5% alcohol. Laughing Skull Lager is crisp and dry on the palate with a clean finish. The company prides itself on the drinkability of the beer, and Red Brick challenges us to crack open a skull and taste the difference quality brewing makes. And that's just what we're going to do tonight. So Chris, drinks to you, man. Tell me what you think of this beer. Uh, It's better than I remember it. I haven't had it in a long time, but it's definitely crisper, very good. And actually, in fact, I performed stand-up comedy in the Laughing Skull Lounge in downtown Atlanta. And um, I like to commemorate this by raising a glass to those wonderful days of doing open mic comedy. That's right, man. And I saw Chris do open mic comedy. It's great. Maybe we'll post some of that stuff to the website. Check us out. Uh, Yeah, I love Laughing Skull. I think it's a great beer. Uh, I'm getting a lot of malt out of this beer. It's almost like you took a Sam Adams Boston lager and dumped in the malt from an Anchor beer. It's a real malty beer. Now, I love both those beers, and I love this beer, too. This is a great beer to work with in your in your repertoire. And I'm going to give this beer mm, four bullets out of five. I think I'm getting a half a bullet more just because it's hometown pride, baby. Um, yeah, I'd definitely rate this beer high. It's uh, very clean, very crisp. Although it's got a little sticky sweet finish. That I do I'm get not, that. I'm not sure if I really love that, but... It's a solid beer, it's well-named, and it's from hometown. Hometown pride. Well, guys, with that, let's dive into the Battle of Atlanta. The main attack takes place on a hilltop where the Confederate line made a sharp turn, a place forever after known as the Dead Angle. Here, Union soldiers in columns 20 men deep charge up an open hillside toward well-entrenched Confederate troops. The only time that he does that, and he lives to regret it in the same way that Grant came to regret what happened at Cold Harbor 
by making a frontal assault. Sherman makes a frontal assault at Kennesaw Mountain and is severely repulsed with heavy casualties. I've heard men say that if they ever killed a Yankee during the war, they were not aware of it. I am satisfied that on this memorable day, every man in our regiment killed from 20 to 100 each. All that was necessary was to load and shoot. Sam Watkins. Shooting as fast as he can, Confederate Sam Watkins finds his rifle too hot to touch. As heaps of Union bodies pile in front of his trench, soldiers vomit from the heat. Soon the fighting is hand to hand, but the Confederates hold. The sun beaming down on our uncovered heads, the thermometer being 110 degrees in the shade, and a solid line of blazing fire right from the muzzles of the Yankee guns poured right into our very faces, singeing our hair and clothes. The hot blood of our dead and wounded spurting on us, and the awful concussion causing the blood to gush out of our noses and ears. And above all, the roar of battle made it a perfect pandemonium. Sam Watkins. Now, the Battle of Atlanta began on May 6, 1864. Now, this is an election year in the North, and things aren't going great for the Union. People of the North are becoming war-weary. Now, the Democratic Party in the North is running on a platform of peace with the South. Lincoln and the Republican Party want a decisive victory for the North before the election in order to boost Lincoln's chance for re-election. Anna, Atlanta, would be a decisive, war-changing victory for the North. I think it's also important to remember the overall context of this is that the Battle of Atlanta is taking place less than a year after Lee's defeat at Gettysburg. But the Confederacy will only last about another 11 months after this battle is completed. Sherman's already destroyed Mississippi and captured Tennessee. So the Confederacy is in its death throes and only the industrial capacity of Atlanta remains to supply the army, the Confederate forces in the Carolinas and Virginia. That's right. And I also want to point out at this time, Atlanta was called the Gate City because it was a vital rail link between the eastern sections of the Confederate States of America and the western sections. Now, if Sherman can cut that vital rail link between those two sections, it's like a second anaconda plan. It's like he took another section of Mississippi and he splits the Confederacy into thirds instead of just halves. So it's a really good plan. Now, the Battle of Atlanta doesn't start in Georgia. It actually begins in Chattanooga, Tennessee, on the Tennessee-Georgia border. And during the winter, when both armies stopped fighting, the approximately 68,000 Confederates under General Joseph Johnston fell back to Dalton, Georgia, while the northern forces remained in Chattanooga. The Union forces number around 100,000 men, and they are 115 miles from Atlanta. They're commanded by General William Tecumseh Sherman. His army outnumbers the Confederate army by approximately three to two. His immediate superior, General Ulysses S. Grant, has complete faith in his ability. And now Sherman has complete control over what they call the Western Theater. Under him are three other generals, one of them being General McPherson, who's going to be one of his main aggressive battle commanders as as they make the push towards Kennesaw Mountain. That's right. Now, Sherman splits his forces into three armies led by three different generals. And I want you to remember, Sherman outnumbers Johnson three to two. By organizing his army in three different groupings, Sherman is able to engage the Confederates with two armies while flanking them with the third. And as we will see, Sherman does this throughout the campaign. Both of these generals are experts, and that's the topic of our next segment. All right, guys, it's time for General versus General. This is the part of the show where we break down the characteristics of the two commanders who are facing each other. 
And I'm going to give you some quotes that I think capture the spirit of the campaign and help us understand how and why the campaign played out the way it did. Chris, you got something you want to say? William T. Sherman. Huh. Not a name I'd associate with a badass, but then you throw in the fact that the T stands for Tecumseh, <laughs> and you get a wholly different animal. Sherman is an aggressive commander. It's all about total war and hounding his foe. What do you think, Luke? Well, all right. 44-year-old Sherman is a character out of a Quentin Tarantino movie. He rarely slept, and he rarely ate food. Most of the people who met him described him as mad. He started commanding men in Kentucky where he was an utter failure as a commander. He was replaced, and he seriously considered suicide. This was two years before his infamous march to the sea. One eyewitness described Sherman this way, quote, He was the most American-looking man I ever saw. He was tall and lank, never ever erect, with hair like a thatch, a beard trimmed close, a wrinkled face. He wore a brown field officer's coat with no shoulder straps, muddy trousers, and one spur. He talks continually and with immense rapidity, with a very awkward walk. He might sit for the New York Times as the ideal portrait of a Yankee, end quote. Here's a few quotes from Sherman himself. Quote, Grant stood by me when I was crazy, and I stood by him when he was drunk. Here's another one. Quote, Give me men enough in time to look over the ground, and I'm not afraid of the devil himself. And then there was the time he banned Bibles from coming to the men in his camp. His response, bullets are better than Bibles. Of course, he used the shipping space to ship more bullets to his men. Yeah, Sherman was the ultimate comeback kid. You know, he, he brought his lunch pail. He was the first one there, last one to leave. He was a gym rat, student of the game. He really <laughs> redeemed himself during that Vicksburg campaign under Grant. That's you know, true. That's allowed him to get promotion to overall command of the Western Theater. That's right. And facing off against Sherman is 54-year-old Joseph Eggleston Johnston. Johnston was a, a very able general. Unfortunately, President Davis hated Johnston for personal reasons. Johnston was a, a thrust-and-parry artist, retreating or shifting as necessary, waiting for the enemy to make his first mistake, and then striking with concentrated power when the opportunity arrived. He was wounded two years earlier in the shoulder and chest commanding the defense of Richmond. Upon taking command of the Confederate Army in Georgia, he immediately increased discipline and morale. He was a perfect Virginia gentleman. Well-born, well-read, well-educated, courtly, quiet, but authoritative. Yeah, Johnson was like the Tony Romo of the Confederate Army. He wasn't the biggest winner, but you had a shot when he was in there. He showed some yeah. skills, and you just you just weren't sure how why this guy could never get over the top. During the Battle of Atlanta, Johnson was basically handed a shit sandwich and asked to take a big bite of it. He constantly had to retreat to avoid being cut off by Grant's, uh, by Sherman's constant maneuvering around his around his side, and Johnson didn't want to get cut off from his supply lines, or his army would be destroyed. He's constant. He was constantly looking for ground to have to, to for a decisive confrontation, but that would never come. Well, here's some quotes from Johnston. Quote. This army is now far from being in condition to resume the offensive. It is deficient in numbers, arms, subsistence stores, and field transportation. End quote. Not the kind of guy that's saying, we're going to fight the devil if I see the ground first. Do you see what I mean? Now, I want you to contrast this quote about Johnston and President Davis with Sherman's quote about Sherman and Grant. Listen to this. Quote, The president detests Joe Johnston for all the trouble he's given him, and General Joe returns the compliment with compound interest. His hatred of Jefferson Davis amounts to a religion. With him, it colors all things. End quote. Now, think... How's that going to be for the troops on the ground when your president and the general commanding the, the troops hate each other? Well, Jefferson Davis, you know, 
uh, what do you what do you say about Jefferson Davis? Johnson, on the other hand, he's just a cautious guy. He doesn't want to get the army destroyed. He doesn't want to be the guy that loses the war, which ultimately he's the guy that helps lose the Battle of Atlanta, which helps lose the war. It just proves war, like in sports, like in football, it's better to be on the attack. That's true. You keep the initiative. All right, you got anything else you want to add? Grab the enemy by his nose and kick him in his ass. <laughs> All right. With that, I think that was my wife's wedding vow to me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> On May 6, 1864, Sherman sent his army across the Tennessee border into Georgia. Johnston was waiting for him at Rocky Face Ridge, 85 miles from Atlanta. Johnston set his army at the top of a strong ridge blocking Sherman's direct route to Atlanta. Sherman sent two armies to engage Johnston, and he sent his third army around Johnston's left flank towards Resaca, Georgia. Resaca is directly behind Johnston. If Sherman makes it around Johnston's flanks, Johnston will be cut off from resupply. Moreover, Atlanta will be open to an assault without any defenders. On May 7th, Sherman makes a token attack on Johnston to tie him down. Yeah, I mean, Johnston just, I mean, what's he going to do? He's He's outnumbered. All he can do is basically hold the line because if the army's destroyed, he's done. Like yes. there's no point. So he doesn't have the men or the materials to make anything out of it. Well, what he's trying to do, and he said this explicitly, was he's waiting for Sherman to make a mistake and expose a fraction of his army, and then Johnson will concentrate his forces on that small segment of Sherman's army and destroy it. Yeah, but you you got to be waiting. You got to be waiting to spring that trap. And I don't think Johnson ever had that trap. Sherman would have had to made a huge blunder for that that to be, that exposure. The problem is Sherman's so talented yeah. that he's not making many mistakes. But maybe he will. We'll see. Meanwhile, Sherman's third army is closing on Resaca. They find heavily entrenched Confederate troops and wait for reinforcements. Sherman withdraws the two armies that are attacking Johnson's front and swings south to attack and take Resaca. Johnston realizes what is happening and withdraws to his fortifications at Resaca. Sherman is 15 miles closer to Atlanta. It's first down for the Union. All right, guys. Now, Sherman is like a football coach with a star running back that can't lose. Now, Chris, you remember we played a team like that once in peewee football, remember? This guy could run through three or four of our tacklers and just keep going. He got so many touchdowns off Chris that the referee called the game to save us the embarrassment. If only the referee had been there when you were asking out girls for prom, right, Chris? Uh, I wish. It would have been helpful. <laughs> it would have been helpful. All right, let's go back to Sherman. So my Sh- friends knew how big a limo was, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Sherman is facing off against Johnston 70 miles from Atlanta. And what does he do? The same damn thing he did at Dalton. On May 13th, Sherman sends two armies to pin Johnston down, and he sends his third around Johnston's line towards Calhoun, a city below Johnston, and again on his supply line. You'd think Johnson would uh, you know, start to notice a pattern of, hey, they're coming right at me. I wonder if anybody's coming around the side. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Now, historian Samuel Carter III describes the frontal assault Sherman made on Johnston at Resaca. Quote, it began with artillery. Daniel Titus was a Union soldier. And he describes the artillery barrage. Suddenly, unexpectedly, the air trembles violently with the din of battle, and the darkness is chased away by the fitful flashes of the musket. Volcanic fires leap forth from the cannon's mouth, and their apocalyptic thunders startle the weary sleeper from his slumbers. In a moment, the enemy's fire is returned, and the storm of battle rages with terrible fury. The first assault was at night, and was easily repulsed by the Confederates. The following day, the Union forces renewed the assault. One eyewitness wrote, 
The column advanced up the hill, steadily, bravely, as if on parade, driving back the rebel sharpshooters and skirmishers to their own works. Over the hill they were swept, down the valley in double-quick time, across it, raked by withering fire from rebel artillery, up the opposite hill towards its crest where they met a regular shower of shells and bullets, yet on they swept. The entire corps, disheartened, began to fall back. The Confederate troops climbed to the top of their fortifications and cheered. A lone color-bearer of the Illinois' 1st Infantry turned in his tracks, charged back to the rebel breastworks and planted the stars and stripes on its crest. He was shot dead. But his example caused his comrades in the rear to renew the assault. Three times during the morning and early afternoon were those attacks made on the Confederate lines. End quote. You know what I love about the Civil War the most? Just the language these people use is just so great. It's so like color- yeah, it's so colorful, so descriptive, so epic. They didn't have TV back then. They were reading all the time. They were reading know, the classics, Homer, just, Shakespeare. Yeah, and they were just I just it's just beautiful. It, just it is make, good. Makes 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 it sound grand. Well, I don't I don't know if it's grand, but it's something. No. An eyewitness describes the macabre scene on the field after the battle at Resaca. Quote The field was thickly strewn with dead and wounded. Rebel and Union officers and men lay piled together. Some were transfixed with bayonet wounds, their faces wearing that fierce contorted looks that marks those who have suffered agony. Others, who were shot dead, lay with their calm faces and glassy eyes turned to heaven as if they were sleeping. Others had their skulls crushed in by the end of a musket, while the owners of the muskets lay still beside them, with the death grip tightening on the pieces. Clinging to one of the guns was a youth with the top of his head shut off. Another near him, his body cut in two, still clung to the ropes. End quote. Ah, the exaltation of victory we got in the first quote, and now the second quote, the reality of the situation, that war f***ing is hell. (laughs) War is hell, that's right. Well, he becomes a German. Yeah, especially when you're fighting Sherman. Now, the Confederates lost 2,000 men in that battle, and the Northerners lost 5,000 men. This was the price the Union men paid to flank Johnson's army and gain 30 miles. It worked, though. Johnson had fallen back to Calhoun, Georgia. Sherman moved in to engage him. It was May 19, 1864. Sherman was only 43 miles away from Atlanta. All right. Arriving at Calhoun, Johnson searched for a suitable area to deploy his army and stop Sherman. He thought he found it three miles south of Calhoun at a crossroads named Adairsville. He entrenched his men, and on May 17, Sherman's men skirmished with Confederates at Adairsville. As night fell, the Union made ready to attack the Confederates in force. Upon examining the lay of the land, Johnston decided that Adairsville was a weak position and withdrew to New Hope Church, the site of the next Titanic battle. It was May 25th when the Union forces engaged the Confederates at New Hope Church. Now Sherman was only 25 miles away from Atlanta. Chris, how about we hit up that halftime report? All right, let's do it, buddy. All right, Chris. With the halftime report, take it away. Well, this is the half of the first half of the battle. So really, it's like the end of the first quarter. And Sherman so far has outmaneuvered Johnson 90 miles from Chattanooga all the way to New Hope in three and a half weeks. Basically, Johnson is getting his ass handed to him. He's too cautious and he's waiting for some miracle Hail Mary scenario where Johnson would have to decide to tell his men to tie all their boots together as they march so they'd fall down and Johnson could turn around and somehow kick his ass. But to Johnson's credit, he is killing more Yankees than Sherman's army is getting Confederate is getting, getting Confederate casualties. <laughs> That's right. But Johnson and Johnson's soldiers love the bald bastard. And maybe if Johnson had more territory he could retreat into, pull a Russia, 
he might have be able to find that great ground where he can make some kind of offensive maneuver. And now it's also important to remember, this. by this time it's 1864, so soldiers on both sides have been fighting this war for three years. So whenever they stop, they're heavily entrenching. They're digging their trenches because they know they're finding more cover there. The Civil War is laying the groundwork for modern armies and battles that will see that to come that we will see in the following year, in the following decades, such as World War One and even World War Two. Yeah, that's something I really uh, I've, I've read a lot about the Civil War. I've watched a lot of documentaries about the Civil War, and still I didn't know the extent of the entrenchments. By this time in the war, eighteen sixty four, anytime the soldiers stop, they're setting up entrenchment works. They're setting up breastworks. Uh, this this really points to World War One. This really points to modern warfare. Well, yeah, because this this is the, the time they have they have rifle. They're they're the the guns they're using are rifled guns. Yeah, so that they can shoot farther and shoot more accurately than any soldiers up until this point. That's right. All right, Chris. Thanks for that halftime report, man. On May twenty fifth, Sherman attacks Johnson at New Hope Church. I want to describe the battlefield. First of all, the weather was horrible. It was raining constantly. The roads, which are all dirt, are a quagmire of quicksand-like mud. The Union forces attacked entrenched Confederates three times starting in the late afternoon. The Yankees tried to storm the southern line, only to be repulsed with terrible losses. The fighting was so bad, the Federals took to calling the place Hell Hole instead of New Hope Church. The next day, both sides deepened their entrenchments and taunted, taunted each other across no man's land. Now, are... Now, are they firing from the trenches, the Confederates, or are they having to get up out of their trenches to fire their weapons? They're firing from the breastworks and trenches. Okay. Yeah, for sure. On May 27th, the Federals renewed the attack on the left side of Johnston's line. Now, the Confederates had just received newspapers from the North, which described the Southerners as demoralized. As the Union forces attacked their lines, the Confederates vigorously and easily repulsed the Federals, all the while shouting the battle cry, Demoralized! Come on, Yankees! We're demoralized! We're so demoralized! At the end of the day, the Union forces had achieved nothing. There were so many wounded that one eyewitness wrote, quote, the very woods seemed to moan and groan with the voices of suffering and dying men, end quote. An eyewitness described the battlefield that day, quote, Hundreds upon hundreds lay on the field. I noticed some soft, beardless faces, which did not fit with the savage warfare in which they had been engaged. Hundreds of letters from mothers, sisters, and friends were found among them, and pictures taken singly and in groups. Though they had been my enemies, my heart bled at the sickening scene. End quote. The Union forces lost 3,000 men in the engagement, and the Confederates lost only 300. Johnson did a few more battles like that. That's right. Now, both sides settle into a sort of stalemate, but the Union and the South kept men in the trenches around New Hope Church. But Johnston fell back, looking for a stronger position, an impregnable natural fortress. He would find it at Kennesaw Mountain. Whee! Now, Chris, before we get into the battle, I know you like to hike Kennesaw Mountain. Johnston thought he could make Kennesaw Mountain into, and the surrounding area into a sort of natural fortress that could hold off Sherman for months, if not years. Can you tell us a little bit about the mountain and the area and why you think a general would want to fortify it? Oh, I love Kennesaw Mountain, and the surrounding area is just beautiful. Well, Kennesaw Mountain, there's a main mountain, but then there's also a large ridge line that, um, that flows off the main mountain into smaller hills. And it dominates pretty much the entire area. So obviously a general, and actually when you go hike Kennesaw Mountain, you they have 
placards that show you where Johnson had positioned his troops and his artillery, and they can they, you can see Atlanta from the top of Kennesaw Mountain, so it it commands a 360 degree view of all the surrounding areas. So anybody looking to build a fortified position to protect the city of Atlanta would obviously put a fortification there. Now listen, if it was like a, a if you're at the top of the mountain and it was like a skyscraper, how many stories up do you think it is? Um, it's at the top of Kennesaw Mountain is a mile up. Whoa! Wow! All right. Yeah, I've hiked, I actually enjoy hiking Kennesaw Mountain and walking around. Kennesaw is a lovely town. It's got many breweries and distilleries that have sprung up over the past decade. And in fact, I visited one today in honor of us, the Lazy Guy Distillery, and brought back some fantastic bourbon that was distilled and bottled in Kennesaw. And in fact, the distillery uses a barn that dates back to 1830 to distill and and bottle their whiskey. So this whiskey was distilled in a barn that survived all these battles in (laughs) Kennesaw, Georgia. Let's take a hit off this. Oh, man, that's smooth. That's smooth. Oh my goodness, thanks Chris. All right, and with that, pick me up. I'm here to tell you, for weeks, the two entrenched armies faced each other as Sherman sought a way to crack Johnston's mountain fortress. Johnston's entrenched Confederates anchored on Kennesaw Mountain awaited Sherman's advance. On June 27th, Sherman came. The battle started with an intense artillery bombardment. Historian Samuel Carter describes the shelling. Quote, It seemed that the archangel of death stood and looked on with outstretched wings while all the earth was silent. Then, like a clash of cymbals, the Union batteries broke loose, 140 big guns hurling round after round of grape and solid shot and shrapnel into the Confederate defenses. A newspaper correspondent wrote, The ground seemed to heave, the torrents of lead seeming to empty the heavens, as this great battle of battles on Georgia soil unfolded. One Confederate soldier expressed it more simply, all hell broke loose in Georgia, end quote. So what he would say was the devil just went down to Georgia. (laughs) He would say that. Finally, the barrage fell silent, and the Federals advanced in two waves in 90-degree heat. Confederate sharpshooters brought them down in scores. Confederate artillery on the mountain tore gaping holes in the ranks, but on they came like a second picket's charge. Rebel infantry began hurling stones and rolling boulders, down on the advancing troops. Still on, the Union soldiers came, swearing and fighting their way over rocks and underbrush to reach the main Confederate entrenchments. As the Union troops reached the top of Little Kennesaw, the defenders had scarcely time to reload their rifles and relied on their bayonets or swung their muskets at the enemy like clubs. In one Confederate rifle pit, nine out of eleven Georgians were bayoneted to death. Most of the Union troops were stopped within 20 or 30 feet of Confederate entrenchments. With 600 Union soldiers sprawled out along the slope of Little Kennesaw, most of the survivors were pinned down in the crevices in the hollows of the hillside, threatened with death if they raised their heads. End quote. What do you think about all this, Chris? Oh, yeah. I mean, Little Kennesaw, that's definitely the lower slope of the mountain. So that would probably be, that's that's probably Sherman trying to flank around the the taller part of Maine, Kennesaw Mountain. And that area is heavily wooded. It's got a lot of rocks, trees, especially when you start to get up, when you start to hike up the main slope. It would have been death trying to trying to take that hill. I can imagine. So I want to give you guys a quote from an eyewitness. This is Confederate Private Sam Watkins describing what he saw at Kennesaw Mountain. Quote, 
The sun beating down on our uncovered heads, the thermometer was over 110 degrees in the shade, and we had a solid line of blazing fire right in the muzzles of the Yankee guns poured right into our faces, singeing our hands and clothes, the hot blood of our dead and wounded spurting on us, the blinding smoke and stifling atmosphere filling our eyes and mouths, the awful concussion causing the blood to gush out of our noses and ears, and above all, the roar of battle made it a perfect pandemonium. Bursting shells from both sides set the undergrowth on fire, and flames raced towards the wounded trapped on the slopes. And when the firing ceased, I never saw so many broken down and exhausted men in all my life. I was as sick as a horse and as wet with blood and sweat as I could be, and many of our men were vomiting with excessive fatigue, over-exhaustion, and sunstroke. Our tongues were parched and cracked for water, and our faces black from smoke, and our dead and wounded were piled indiscriminately in the trenches. There was not a single man in the company who was not wounded. We remained here three days after the battle. And in the meantime, the woods had taken fire, and during the nights and days of all that time continued to burn. And at all times, every hour, day, and night, you could hear the shrieks and the screams of the poor fellows who were left on the field in a stench so sickening as to nauseate the whole of both armies arose from the decaying bodies of the dead left lying on the field end quote. the union attack had failed the federals fell back to their lines behind the union lines the wounded witnessed a horror freak show masquerading as a hospital for two days after the battle union troops remained pinned to the mountain slope clinging to logs boulders holes or any cover they could find on the third day there was a truce to bury the dead. We can only shudder when we think of the wounded who died on the field before the truce was called. Then came the grim task of burying the dead. An eyewitness describes the macabre deed, quote, I get sick now when I think of it. Long and deep trenches were dug and hooks made of bayonets crooked for the purpose. And all the dead were dragged and thrown pell-mell into these trenches. A chaplain said a word over the dead and the pits were filled. End quote. These are the pits millions of commuters drive by every day on their commute into the metropolis of Atlanta. This is the death foundation on which our city was built. This was the greatest Union defeat in the entire campaign for Atlanta. The Federals lost 3,000 men. The Confederates lost 1,000. Sherman learned his lesson on July 8th. His next move was his classic flanking move, leaving a large force to harass the Confederates at Kennesaw. He sent another army east across the Chattahoochee River and flanked Johnston's Southerners out of their mountain stronghold. It worked. Johnston pulled back to meet the threat on his flank. Sherman was now only five and a half miles from Atlanta. The first shells began to fall on the city. Civilians were in a wild panic. They had firmly believed Johnston would hold the line at Kennesaw Mountain in perpetuity. Now Sherman was knocking on their door with high explosive shells. Exasperated by Johnston's inability to stop Sherman, Confederate President Jefferson Davis relieves Johnston from command and places General John Bell Hood in command of the Confederate Army. The defense of Atlanta fell on Hood's shoulders, but that's another podcast. Yeah, we're stopping here. It's just getting good. Uh, no, no more podcasts. Look the morn in russet mantle clad walks o'er the dews of yon high eastern hill. What? Dude, it's Sunrise and Waffle House is calling. Woo, Waffle House. Waffle House, I love you, girl. Scattered, smothered, and covered. Oh, every day, every way. All right, folks, that's it. We've wrapped up another one from the North Georgia Bunker. I'd like to thank Luke for inviting me here, and I'd like to invite all of you to visit thebattlecast.com. 
and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. The five-star review thing really helps the show. And if you don't have something nice to say, remember, don't say anything at all. And this is Luke from the North Georgia Bunker reminding you to remember those who sacrificed so much for us. Enjoy the life, the food, the family, the peace, and the beer that they couldn't. And to sing us out is local Atlanta metal band Brazen Angel singing The Devil Came Down to Georgia. I saw these guys at the masquerade and they blew the roof off of this song. Check them out on YouTube. Thank you so much. I appreciate each and every one of you listeners. I really do from the bottom of my heart. Waffle House. Waffle House. We're going to Waffle House. Bye. Bitch, I'm the best it's ever been. He played. Round, 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 round,